You're listening to the Thinker What Works podcast. Today, how to make friends and enemies through understanding different cultures. Plus, how travel can help us understand ourselves and others in the business world. And if that wasn't enough, today, Nikki's favorite place in the world. This is the Thinker Podcast. I'm Jason Todd, here with my co-host, Alex Gary, and my special guest, Nikki Jarvis. She joins us from our Chicago office, where she works in business development. She's also a world traveler. Tell us, Nikki, where have you been in the world? Ah, well, where have I not been, right? Uh, traveling is definitely a big passion of mine. So uh, starting in Europe, went to Italy and Sweden, France, Spain, Mauritius, Singapore, India, of course, Mexico and Canada, New Zealand. So so for our <laughs> listeners who are less traveled, where is Mauritius? Great question. Uh, so Mauritius, if you know where South Africa is, it's the very bottom of the continent of Africa. If you go to the right of it, you'll see two very small dots on the map. And one of those, the first dot is the island of Mauritius. So beautiful beaches, that's what they're known for. So a great time to go relax on the beach if you're interested. Well, how do you pick these? I mean, it, do you just you know point at a place on a map, or is there a rhyme or reason be- between some of these trips? Yeah. Uh, well, for Burma, when I went there, that was truly spinning a globe and letting my fingers stop on a spot. Uh, but for a lot of the other countries, it's proximity. So if you're traveling Europe, you're, it's really easy to go from one country to another. Um, with Asia, there's a little more planning to it because transport's a little different. So, but each of them, I usually try to focus on education systems. So whatever education theory or approach that I'm into for that time period, that's generally where I'll, where I'll head. And why education systems? Tell us about them. I believe education is really the base of our society, right? So wherever we continue to move forward, our education always serves as that foundation for where we're going. So Um, Whether we're trying to be a more patriotic country, a lot of times countries will focus on education and putting that curriculum in to move the country in that direction. So generally, education serves as that transport to get us where we want to go. So you're using travel and learning about these different educational systems to do what? To inspire your own thinking or change the world? Where Where are you headed with this? We're always trying to change the world, make it a better place, right? So... Over the travels, I've been looking at the strengths of a lot of these education systems and taking those strengths and trying to compile them together to almost have our best practice for education and then ultimately one day kind of transform the U.S., um, but more specifically create a structure so that as a world we're working together and helping each other out and and communicating what's working well and what isn't working in our education systems. What what kind of examples do you have? What 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 are some examples of things that you've learned from these other cultures that you can apply or that maybe you have applied to your experience in the US? Definitely. Well, um, from early education in China, their kindergarten schools, for example, they created schools slash classrooms that are circular in motion. And so the students for their entire school day go from in this circular building that has different stations that are teaching the kids motor skills and different thinking skills. And so the students 
self-learning, self-directed, are going from station to station. So it feels like they're playing, but they're learning so much at the same time. That's one system that I think is really positive that we can take here in the U.S., for example, because um, at that age, motor, there's a ton of energy and there's a lot to learn. So it was a great way to kind of channel all that energy into learning. Um, another specific example is Singapore that we've been working on applying here in the U.S. in the sense that Singapore used to be really down in where they compare to other countries in their education results. So how are their students doing in relation to the rest of the world? And in 2009, they had a big change up of how they structured their education system and more specifically their curriculum. So they included more hands-on curriculum, more service learning, more in the field so that the students could apply their textbook examples into more tangible ideas of what they're learning about. And they had really positive feedback and results and are now uh, in the top five in regards to world rankings. So something, again, that you see it a lot in universities being applied into what they call the service learning model. Which countries were still really far behind or, or really needed a revolution in how they taught? Uh, in a lot of Asian countries, you'll find that the, the structure and the foundation just isn't there. Uh, so generally, the, the funding to get just basic materials is uh, lacking, and without materials, it's hard to really have that full experience of learning. So um, Asian countries, as in India, there's just so many states in India where each state is creating a different kind of structure of education and someone else running it. So there's a lot of disorganization there that they've got to work on. Now, you were in India at the end of last year, right? And that was pretty, that was kind of an interesting experience as I remember it was uh, right when they were going through some currency issues as well. And you kind of got stuck in the middle of that. I did. I did. It was a fun time. So the demonetization was happening. So they did it for two reasons where uh, in order to get rid of some of their corruption, they changed their uh, money system. So 500 and 1000 rupee bills were no longer accepted. And the government put a very strict limit on when this money could be turned into the bank in order to get the new 2,000 bill rupee. And so they didn't quite print enough rupees to service all of the money that was coming in. And they also wanted to transform the country into more of cards, so credit cards, and uh, where the rest of the world has been. So there's been some big pushback from the country that is such a cash-based country. So my time over there... I was expecting to find a couple rupees that I could transition my American cash to the rupee, but even in the airports, they ran out of cash, long lines at the banks, ATMs that were empty. So I relied on a lot of kind individuals over there to get around. That's awesome. Yeah, you, you had told us some stories about that. So, so with the with the education system in India and, and your time over there, what did what did you what did you draw from from that specific experience and how that impacts education? Well, in general, I saw an amazing community come together. Right, everyone was in the same field where it was right during farming season as well. So people were putting rocks down in place of where they were in line, and so I saw a, a lot of trust and that community is something that I haven't seen 
at, to such a strength before of that communal support. And so that translated into the education system of the kids, the children of the community are being educated together and everyone has a stake in that. And therefore the community supplied school supplies. If one family couldn't get supplies for their kids, then another family pitched in and made sure that everyone had at least the tools in order to go to school. So that is a pretty big contrast then to the United States. It is. Because that isn't a um, that isn't a mandated thing. That's just a community thing. Well, I mean, because here we have public schools and, and we have nonprofits that pitch in, but it is the public schools um, in a way that have to keep each student uh, supplied. But there it seems like the community does it. It's not a, It's not an official thing. Exactly. It is community focused. And uh, as if it's official or not, that it doesn't necessarily translate into actually getting those materials. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how the cultures, what you've learned from the travels uh, in cultures and business. India is an interesting thing, because I was having a conversation about that. It is such a cash based society that uh, when you deal with people from India, they love to negotiate. Is that is that something that just comes from having grown up over there and everything you're haggling over everything? Exactly, and that's a very that's very culturally ingrained. So, whereas in the U.S. we see a price tag on a product, that is the price, and we don't negotiate, right? We just assume that that's that's final. But you'll see those same price tags over in India, and as a Westerner, we just assume that that is final, whereas, no, that price has been positioned a little bit higher than it's probably actually worth or trying to be sold at because they expect it to be negotiated down. What other, of all your travels, which cultures are the most similar to the U.S.? I'd say generally your your Western cultures, right? So New Zealand, for example, very similar to the U.S. in regards to the way that meetings are conducted. So they're very organized. They expect you to be on time. Time is something that's very respected over there. Um, otherwise, in the U.K. and Europe in general, you'll find business practices to be similar in the sense in France and Germany, there's that organization, there's that hierarchical component within corporations and just a, a formal business structure. So which ones are most dissimilar? When we talk about dissimilar, there's a lot of categories, right? So communication, how time is looked at, how trust is, is looked at. So uh, in going with those themes, I'd say that um, in South America, for example, you'll find that time is looked at a little different. It's a little bit more relaxed. So one may not show up maybe right on the dot for a meeting, or there's a bit more of a personal element to meetings. So they want to get to know who you are first before we dive into business. You know, how are the kids? How's the family? Let me know who you are and who I'm doing business with first because I need to have that trust established before we jump into this business thing. So those are some of the differences that you'll see from country to country. So by doing all this traveling, how does it help you uh, learning the different cultures? I think that there's something... It just as we had talked about earlier in education with that experiential learning, that's exactly what traveling is. It's having those experiences. And there's certain components of business that you can't measure over a, an internet call or uh, through a video conference, 
for example, that time piece. If I'm going to a country that values time in the same way that the U.S. does, say France and Germany, if I'm, if I'm having a meeting with you and I'm new and I'm German, I'm going to look to see, are you on time? And if you are, then I'm going to know that you respect my time and that's going to tell me something about you. And you haven't spoken, you haven't done anything except show up to our meeting and I already have a piece of information about you. And so there's things like that or uh, if you look into the authority piece. So in Japan, for example, authority is very sacred. So if I'm trying to get to speak to your big boss, say I'm trying to contact the CEO of a company, I can't contact an associate to connect me with that CEO because that associate most likely has to go through their manager to ask permission to even send an email to someone that's higher than them. So there's that authority piece that's very valued. So all of these pieces, uh, when you travel to a country, they're going to be able to who you're doing business with is going to be able to get these messages and these understandings about you and how you understand their culture and who they are uh, without you speaking or saying anything. That that rings true. I was uh, doing a project last year with Johnson & Johnson, which of course is this huge, you know, they're everywhere. And I was talking to a lady in South America who, when she came to the United States, she said it was a, a huge learning curve for her to know that she needs to be at the meeting at the time, ready to do work, not catch up. And coming from Brazil, that just wasn't how things were done. Definitely. Yeah, in the U.S., we we are very punctual, right? We, we value time. We also don't really necessarily have strong boundaries of when to do business and when not to do business. For example, in New Zealand, you can do business over lunch, but you cannot do business over dinner. Dinners held as kind of a sacred either social space to get to know if you're still in that business negotiation. They're going to get to know you on that social level, but you, you should not bring business up at a dinner meet. It's not a meeting, just at dinner. <laughs> Those kind of meal differences as well. In the United States, are any meals you know exempt from business? Probably not. No, they're all. I can't imagine. I mean, you know, you go out for breakfast to somebody and you're, you're doing business. Right. right? And then lunch is big time business. I'm wondering if you have you have you seen this in action here in the States? I know that you've you're very traveled and you, you you're also very traveled in the U.S. Have you seen this these sort of cultural differences in action in the United States where people become offended uh, because of the culture in our, in our, the cultural differences uh, that could have been prevented had we just been a little more educated on other cultures? Yeah, well, uh, people visiting to the U.S., I think the biggest one that we see is the the time, the time component. So I've been in big meetings where you've got some really high up representatives of companies with who are meeting with either Latin American co- country companies or an African company or an Asian company that's more relaxed. So look more South Asia that they're waiting for these representatives to come and you know the clock is ticking 10 minutes 15 minutes late and then they get their 20 minutes still relaxed because they don't understand the difference but these american representatives are like they've already written up these these checks of this is not good like warning signs right i think they're we went through this a little bit like when the japanese started really coming into the united states and the japanese are very formal mm-hmm 
Uh, so there's always been that thought, okay, dealing with Japanese, you have to think differently. But I don't think very many people think that you have to deal differently with Koreans than you do with Indians or Pakistanis. I think that in America, we don't always think about those details because we're used to doing business in our own country. And those small details really do make a difference. And so what I would recommend if whether they're coming here or you're coming, going to whatever country you're working with, I would recommend doing your research, right? We put so much research into new leads and knowing who this company is in and out. But how about what's surrounding that company? And what's surrounding that company is the culture because that's where that company grew out of. And so by doing that research and should I shake their hands? Should I have eye contact? Should I not? What should I wear? All of these things are part of the business process. What would you say to companies who listen to that sort of experience and think, well, no, people should just really you know, work around our own cultures? I mean, after all, they are in the USA. I would ask those companies, what is your intention? Who, who really is your ideal client? Because if you're not willing to understand that client and put yourselves in that client's shoes to understand their business in its entirety, then they probably aren't your client, ideal client at least. Yeah, that's powerful. Thanks. You know, with technology, it's so much easier to meet online now. Do you think, do you foresee a day that, that people don't do that kind of travel and they just hop on Skype and, and have the meetings that way? And if they and if it, we keep going that direction, what gets lost? Yeah, and, and there has been a shift, right? We, we don't have to spend those thousands of dollars to get to the other side of the world. We can just have a video conference. But we still see that people are going on site to clients and going on site to client meetings because there is so much power in that in-person meeting. And we had named some of these before of the time and what we're, we're learning from who we're dealing with or communication styles. There's so much that we miss when we're on a video. It's our hand gestures. It's that fluctuation in your voice that just you can't quite hear it on the computer, but in person you're like, oh, that struck a chord or that meant something to them. And then just the physical closeness factor. We gain so much more trust and understanding of each other. And especially from a cultural standpoint, if there's some language barrier, if there's just some of that other communication that can get lost over the computer, if I'm trying to express something to you, if you look into my eyes and you're right there and can see my hand gestures, you're going to get what I'm trying to say a lot better than if you're trying to decipher it over a video on the computer. So I think that, well, whereas yes, we can have some of those meetings on the computer and that is easier, I don't think we will ever truly get away from meeting in person because of that trust and communication factor. Well, listen, let's step back a second. We, um, Jason first met you at a um, startup weekend competition, correct? And Jason just emailed me the 10th anniversary is coming up. They're, they're, yeah, that's they're, what I saw. Yeah. Um, 
so your idea that you pitched last year was edufluent, right? That's that's learning about the education systems uh, and trying to take best practices from the United States to other countries. So with all your travels, how is that process going? Have there been deals that you could have struck if you knew a little bit more about the person or um, deals that you would have pursued had you, had you known a little bit more about, about it going in? Yeah, I think the biggest, so EduFluent is connecting U.S. ed tech companies with international ministries of education. So getting the technology, the education technology in the U.S. and, and bringing it to other countries because we have such a, a variety of technology here. And the missed opportunities, it's really not getting to spend enough time in those countries where I'm trying to get into that marketplace because when you're there, you can meet someone in a cafe who can connect you with someone in the ministry, or you can walk into the Ministry of Education and be like, hey, I'm really interested in meeting with this person. Do they have any openings in their calendar today? And whereas maybe that approach in the U.S. may not work, in other countries, it does work because you're there. You, you're, And that showing up is really appreciated and respected in, in the U.S. too, but especially abroad. So I think the next place to get edufluent to really be strong is to be able to be in those countries and and really set some roots there instead of doing it all through the computer because there really is those shortfalls that happen. With well, the sales process on something like that with the school district, making them change the way they do, it has to be several months long, correct? Correct, yeah. So uh, we're going to wind us up here. I'm curious. I know that you are always traveling. So what what's on your travel list for 2017 still? 2017. Well, we've got Ireland again coming okay. up in the fall right. <laughs> uh, to do some golfing. But otherwise, in December, we've got Malaysia on the docket to explore their education systems. Awesome. Well, we'll we'll uh, look forward to seeing the pictures from those places uh, well, here when in the we future. Had, when when she joined, we asked her a series of questions, and you said your favorite. What is your favorite place in the world? Uh, it's Sunshine Bay in New Zealand. So right outside of Queenstown, you can find it uh, hiking. Definitely recommend. Most serene, surreal space. It's just you, the mountains, and the water, and very little people to to interrupt that inner peace. So that's great. Well, I appreciate always talking to you, Nikki. Uh, it was a pleasure to get to know you uh, about almost a year ago at Startup Weekend. And it's always a pleasure to speak with you uh, here at Thinker. Pleasure with you too as well. Thanks so much. That was Thinker's What Works podcast. <laughs>